Um, as Brother Bill said, <clears throat> my name is Ruben Amlalo. I'm the, youth mi- I'm the youth ministry director here, uh, but some of you guys might not know, I'm also under care of our presbytery, uh, which means I'm um, actually in training to become a pastor. Um, and part of my <clears throat> training is actually to uh, get the privilege of preaching to y'all. So today, I'm going to be speaking from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. And uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And it's going to be on the overhead. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 16 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence, ab, ab, abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is, it, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Command these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given, by, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. It's the word of God. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, you're good, and your steadfast love endures forever. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray that, Lord, you would um, anoint my lips so that I make it clear. I pray that you would be working in the hearts of your people to receive your word as what it is. Um, And I pray that, Lord, you would give us understanding, help us to find places where we need to apply it. Uh, I pray that, Lord, you would... um, Use my words, Lord, as only you can, to change your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've titled our sermon series in the book of Timothy, Fight the Good Fight. Now this assumes that there is something or someone we are fighting. You might also ask, why are we fighting? How are we fighting? Where are we fighting? And what does it even look like to win? Many of us observe 
that most Americans did not know we were in a war until September 11, 2001. In his chapter on prayer, John Piper, Pastor John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, states that most people show by their priorities and their casual approach to spiritual things that they believe are in peacetime, not wartime. He goes on to say, in wartime, the newspapers carry headlines about how the troops are doing. In wartimes, families talk about the sons and daughters on the front lines and write to them and pray for them with heart-wrenching concern for them. In wartime, we are alert. We are armed. We are vigilant. In our passage today, Paul reminds Timothy the kind of times he and we are in and what it looks like to pursue godliness, the ultimate victory. It is not a time of peace, and therefore it's not a time for leisure. For that reason, Timothy is called to do three things. The first is he's called to understand false godliness. Second is he's called to pursue true godliness. And thirdly, he's called to practice godliness. Like Brother Bill said, I'm graduating from, ser- uh, from seminary. So I have, a, I have a theme for the sermon that I have to keep in my mind as I speak to you guys. Um, and we call it the 3 a.m. Um, sermon theme. Basically, if you woke me up at 3 a.m. this morning and you asked me, what is your sermon about? This is it. The theme of my message is this. Pursuing godliness means pursuing Jesus. Pursuing godliness means pursuing Jesus. So my first point, false godliness, understanding false godliness. For Timothy to pursue godliness, there are four things he needs to understand about the false godliness of his time. First, he needs to understand that it is not a surprise to God, and therefore it should not be a surprise to us. The Spirit has, in verse 1, expressly or clearly made it known the kind of things that are going to happen in these later times opposition and the falling away from the faith is going to be expected. See, in our scripture reading today, Jesus' disciples come to him and ask him his opinion about the temple, about Jerusalem, the symbol of their great time, expecting him to maybe point out how grandeur it is and how beautiful it is. But instead, Jesus turns it into a sermon about the destruction of the temple, which for any Jew of that time would have been anathema because that means the world was coming to an end. But Jesus gives his disciples a heads up so that no one leads them astray. He says, how many, I mean, how many of us know of leaders just rising up during hard times? When things are hard, how many people would just rise up claiming to know the way out? Jesus says, don't fall for it. They are false prophets. So that his disciples don't fall for these false leaders and grieve as though they have no hope, he tells them to be aware of the time. Jesus tells them, chill out. The end is not here yet. 
Now watch out. These are signs of the last days. Secondly, Paul tells Timothy this time or season will be characterized by devotion. Sincere people will be devoted to insincere prophets. Ironically, false prophets would come forward pointing out what kind of times it is as well. And it will provide solutions. The false prophets or the false godliness that Timothy was dealing with prevented people from marriage and from certain foods. Some of them were teaching that Jesus had come and therefore there's no need for marriage anymore. See, Paul highlights the austere and rigid tone of these teachers. Don't do that. Don't do this. Paul uses the word forbid or prevent and require or insist here in verse 3 to show the heavy-handedness of these teachers and the sheepishness of their followers. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul says, this sort of asceticism has the appearance of godliness. Don't fall for it. It looks like the kind of thing that godly people will be devoted to, but don't fall for it. It's totally man-made. Thirdly, and most importantly, Timothy is to understand that it is a spiritual thing. See, on the surface, it might look very genuine. It might just look like people toying with heresies. But it's motivated by demons and liars and hypocrites whose conscience are so seared they cannot feel anything. Leading their followers to the slaughter with no care for their souls. See, this is in direct contrast with what Paul says about the aim of his charge or his instructions. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. See, love being the aim versus heavy-handed austerity and denial of things that God has created for our own good and flourishing, like marriage and food. Fourthly, and the last thing that Timothy is to understand about this false godliness of his time is that it is rooted in a false doctrine of the goodness of God's creation. They got Genesis 1 wrong. Now what do I mean? We often come to the book of Genesis with a lot of questions. And of course, some of them are answered. Most of them are. <laughs> See, but the one thing that's clearly clear in Genesis 1 is that a good God has created a good world. See, but no matter how scientifically sophisticated we get with our questions, there's one question that's behind all the questions. Is God good? Can he be trusted? Does he know what he's doing? Now, I know it sounds trite, but maybe, maybe, just maybe when it really matters, the question we want answered is, is God good? Can he be trusted? When it really matters. Singer Regina Scepter illustrates this in her song, Laughing With. And here's what she says. No one laughs at God in a hospital. 
No one laughs at God in a war. No one is laughing at God when they are starving or freezing or so very poor. No one laughs at God when the doctor calls after routine tests. No one's laughing at God when it's gotten real late and their kid's not back from the party yet. No one's laughing at God when their airplane starts to uncontrollably shake. No one's laughing at God when they see the one they love hand in hand with someone else. They hope that they are mistaken. No one's laughing at God when the cops knock on their door and say, we have some bad news. No one's laughing at God when there's famine or fire or flood. No one's laughing at God. But God can be funny at a cocktail party when listening to a good God-themed joke. Or when the crazies say he hates us and get so red in the face or in the head, you think they're about to choke. God can be funny when told he'll give you money if you just pray the right way. And when presented like a genie who's this, who does magic like Houdini, God can be so hilarious. See, these false teachers hid behind a sophisticated hybrid of Greek philosophy and Jewish teaching mixed with a little bit of Christianity that said, Material is bad, spiritual is good, Jesus has arrived, hooray, no marriage. But Paul points out that this is a rejection of the goodness of God. Is this really it? This is it? God has come, Jesus has arrived, this is it? That's a rejection of what God says the creation is supposed to be. This is all you hope for? Paul says you're rejecting the goodness of God. He points out that they are rejecting the goodness of God. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received by thanksgiving. Now you might not be laughing at God, but what sophisticated answers do you run to when times are hard? So being aware of the warning of the Spirit, how then shall we live? Well, I'm glad you asked. Which brings me to my second point, true godliness. Pursuing true godliness. Knowing what the Spirit says about the later times, what should Timothy do? Should he just double down and become more heavy-handed with his people? Kicking people out of the church who ask questions? See, Timothy was naturally not the assertive type. So you can piece that together by reading the scriptures. He's not the type who would be harsh. He's actually prone to timidity. Yet he was a leader. Timid as he was, here's what the Apostle Paul says about him in Philippians 2.20. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. There you have it. Timothy had the raw materials of what it takes to be a leader. He loves Jesus, and he loves Jesus' people. Love him.
make you do crazy things, even if you're timid. Paul tells Timothy in verse 6, If you put these things before the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. See, the mode of his presentation is very important. Dr. Thomas Lang, I mean Long, professor of preaching at Emory University, in his commentary on this passage says, The tone in which he, that is Timothy, is to do this is actually very congenial, very pleasant, actually very refreshing. See, the imagery here is putting a cup of warm, savory soup before a brother or sister who just came out of the cold. Or putting a cold cup of ice water or lemonade before a brother or sister who just came out of the heat. And he's told, you will be a good servant. Now, the word there for servant is, you will be a good deacon. See, in fact, doing it this way would show, Paul says, that Timothy had been trained in the words of the faith. See, now, Paul is not saying you cannot be passionate about purity in the church. He's actually saying, be very passionate. This will show how well-trained you are. See, this means then that for some of us, we can tone it down a bit. (laughs) Not everyone is a heretic. And for some of us, we can get a bit more angrier about the level of purity in the church. There really is such a thing as wolf in sheep's clothing. See, notice I said inside the church. See, this is a family affair. See, there are risks of both being late reactionate, of waiting before we act. There are risks for the children of God. But there's also risk in being trigger happy and pointing out who's a heretic and who's not. It's family. You could hurt people. See, Jesus was the most passionately godly. Jesus was the most passionate, godly person you'll ever meet. He was so passionate, he is so passionate that both liberals and conservatives claim him. Both religious and irreligious hate him. Capitalists and communists think he's on their side. Chauvinist and feminist. Yes, we are a dysfunctional family, but Jesus has loved us all. He's loved us just the way we are and calls us to change. See, I like to think of the picture we have of Jesus with the long, flowy hair and the pale skin. That's very instructional, actually. Now, I get the argument that it's imperialistic and it's oppressive. But I think at the heart of it, it communicates that we all want Jesus to look just like us, even though we know he doesn't. (laughs) You can take the pictures away, but it's a heart issue. It's a heart problem. We all want Jesus to look just like us. See, at the end of chapter 3, verse 16, 
when Paul tells us what godliness looks like, Paul paints Jesus as the manifestation of what godliness is. He says this, Indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. Go to church every Sunday. Do good to your neighbor. Don't curse. Don't smoke. No, he doesn't say that. He says godliness is actually a person. He's been manifested. He's been revealed. He was manifested in the flesh. See, godliness does not separate flesh from spirit, like these false teachers were doing. He's vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul tells us it is, a, it is the mystery that has now been revealed, made known, brought to light. See, no need anymore to grope in the dark, figuring out what it looks like to be like God, to pursue godliness. He has made it known to us. Now, do you realize how radical this is? How offensive this is? How exclusive this is? If, all, if it takes only godliness to get into the kingdom of God, and Jesus is it, what does it mean for the rest of the world? See, Paul goes on to tell Timothy in verse 7 of our chapter to avoid irreverent, silly myths, but rather to hit the gym. Train yourself for godliness. Train yourself to become like the eternal Son of God. In verse 8, he says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. See, knowing the times and knowing the promise of true godliness, Paul tells Timothy, Look here, Timmy. In the same way that you pursue physical fitness, you need to pursue spiritual fitness. Pursue Jesus. Know what Jesus would do. See, we, we have both physical and spiritual needs, yes, but only one has present and eternal implications. Just do the math, Timothy. Get your priorities straight. Yes, physical needs are important, but the scriptures are very clear about the priority of the spiritual needs. Yes, Jesus fed the hungry, but when they came back the second day, primarily because he fed them, he clearly told them, you're here just for physical food. That's not what I'm here for primarily. I'm here to give you eternal food. See, Paul adds in verse 10, he says, To this end we toil and strive, strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God. See, the word there for strive means harshly criticized or even mocked. See, it's going to be very hard, but because of our hope we have, because of how much he's loved us, we work hard. We are harshly criticized because we will be criticized for being so heavenly-minded 
We have no earthly good. I have a friend who keeps a picture of his head on a body of a bodybuilder on the dashboard of his car. That was his hope. That's what he was striving for. But I never saw him go to the gym, though. Um, let me ask you this. What picture of Jesus do you have? What picture of Jesus are you striving after? Is he just of earthly good? Or does he have eternal implications? How are you using Jesus? What does Jesus mean to you? As Paul tells the Corinthians, if in Christ our hope is only in this world, we are of all people most to be pitied. Most to be pitied. Paul ends verse 10 by saying, God is Savior of all people, especially those who believe. See, rather than reading this as a, a universal appeal for a universal salvation, we need to think about all that Paul has said previously. Why even go through the trouble of writing this whole letter? Pointing out the, the times we live in, talking about toiling and striving. Pursuing godliness is, is not easy. Pursuing Jesus is not easy. So if in the end all will be saved, what's the point? See, David uh, Ackerman commenting on this in his commentary says, a better translation would be God who is Savior of all people who believe. He goes on to say, this is not universal salvation, but universal grace to those who will receive it. See, like we saw in chapter 2, verse 6, God desires all people to be saved. All can be saved. They have the potential to be saved, every single person. Yet there is a believing that needs to happen in a Savior God who's reaching out to save. There is a response to the call. Which brings me to my last point, practice godliness. So in verse 6, Paul tells Timothy to put these things before the brothers. Very congenially, very pleasantly. In verse 11, he says, command. I do think it's important the difference of the tone in which Timothy is to do this. That these things he is talking about, that these things he's supposed to charge and command here is found in verse 11. That is, the hope we have in the living God. See, Timothy is supposed to prioritize the gospel. Yes, there are false teachers around. Don't spend all your energy on them, Timothy. Paul is telling him. Yes, there are false teachings, but the man of God can be so distracted by these things that he forgets what he's actually supposed to be teaching. Oftentimes, Christians are known for what they don't believe versus what they do believe. And this is an instructive warning for us. Charge, teach, instruct. Know what you're about, not what you're not about.
So what is he supposed to be charging or teaching? That man in his natural state hates God. Is hostile towards God. Does not want anything to do with God. Man in his natural state is running so far and fast away from God that he wants nothing to do with him. Yet God, God in his infinite mercy, looked at man and pursued him with Godspeed. God has made peace with us. He has pursued us in our enmity. This is what Timothy is supposed to be charging. This is what Timothy is supposed to be instructing. If you don't understand anything about Timothy's ministry, get this. This is his priority. This should be the heartbeat of our church. This should be the heartbeat of Christian folks. Not what we don't believe in. Not who we don't like. This is the gospel, y'all. That while we were rejecting God, he loved us. He loved us so much, he changed us. This is the good news of our hope. This is the only means to true godliness, knowing what naturally we will do. See, Paul is telling Timothy to focus his energy on preaching this gospel, the hope we have in a living God for all people who believe in him. See, these things Paul, uh, Paul tells Timothy to charge and command. And yes, he will be mocked. He will be ridiculed. He will be harshly criticized even. But he should know what time it is. He should know what time it is. Because of the times we live in, the things that Timothy would be commanding would not be very popular. And the first thing his opponents will probably mock and ridicule is his age. You're too young to know anything. You don't know what you're talking about. You haven't lived long enough to have any conviction about anything that really matters. You just, you're just full of new ideas. So Paul tells him, don't let people despise you for your youth. Now personally, coming from a culture where if you're older, you get to speak your mind and tell people what you think. And if you're younger and people disagree with you, you just shut up and take it and listen. I like this verse a lot. It's not like my life verse or anything, but I like it. Most young people who like to speak their mind like this verse a lot. Yet Paul tells Timothy how he's actually strategically going to go about to survive in a world that's going to mock and criticize him. Now, Paul is helping Timothy get some credibility in what he's talking about. Now, I'm not saying this is only for young people, but I do think it's for all people who feel very marginalized in the church. Rather than getting frustrated that people aren't listening to him, 
because of his youth, Paul tells Timothy seven very practical things he can work on, starting in the middle of verse 12. Tell him to hit the gym. First is, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Get ahead of the pack. Watch your speech. Be known as the most pleasant person. Watch how you present the truth. Is how you're presenting it actually hindering people from hearing it? That's possible. Watch how you act. Watch, watch how you treat people of the opposite sex. Be pure. Pursue purity. Exercise faith and pray. Don't just complain all the time. Secondly, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Know the Word. Know your Bible. Know what it says. Be able to explain the Bible. You don't need to come up with new ideas. See, preparing for this passage, um, I wanted to earn my paycheck. So it's really hard to be preaching a passage that's just so clear. Like, you want to find out new ways to present old truth, right? But Paul is telling Timothy, no, just focus. Know what the passage says and say it. I don't know if I'm doing that or not, but you guys can judge. Um, but Paul is telling Timothy, like, read the scriptures. Know what it says before you try to explain it. Encourage others. Thirdly, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid hands on you. In Timothy's case, his gift was preaching and teaching. I know some of you would not dream in a million years to stand up here and preach. I love it. I love preparing for it. I love losing sleep over it. It's a, it's a gift that by God's grace, he's actually made me like it. But Paul is telling Timothy, do not neglect that gift. And I'm very grateful for the elders for giving me the opportunity to practice my gifts, to exercise it. I encourage you to figure out what your gifts are. We have in a ministry fair, figure out where you fit, what the Lord has endowed with you with. Use it. That's what a gift is for. The best way to communicate to a giver of gift that you appreciate the gift is when you use the gift. Explore what the Lord has endowed you with and use it to encourage his body. That's why he gave it to you. Fourthly, practice these things. Basically, stop thinking you've arrived. Stop thinking you've arrived. You need to practice. Fifthly, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. He's telling Timothy, immerse, pickle yourself. Submerge yourself in these things. Soak yourself in these things. This basically means there are certain things that Timothy would not be doing. He probably won't get to watch Netflix as much. Or play his Xbox as much. Or hang out as much. Because he knows what his gifts are, he's exercising them. He's practicing them. He's being grateful to the Lord for what he's given him.
He's telling them, seek affirmation from other mature believers to see whether you are growing or not. You might think you are. You might be around people who are just like you, unchallenged, complaining about the same things, signing off of each other. Paul is saying, find affirmation from other people who are mature, people who are ahead of the pack, who can encourage you and tell you, yeah, but no. You might think you've arrived, but no. You need to work on this and that and this. It might not be very comfortable at first, but you hear it enough, you start to realize you need to grow in humility. You need to practice more. Sixthly, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. See, basically have integrity with the word of God. Don't get disqualified because of your hypocrisy. How many ministers do we know who've just hypocritically been disqualified because they've not kept watch, kept a close watch between what they are saying and what they actually are doing. Persist, seventhly, persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. See, there is integrity that re- that's required for the godly leader. Timothy should not be like an overweight personal trainer. Or the coach that never gets in a game with you, just on the sidelines the whole time. That's not what Timothy is about, should be about. He should watch his life and what he's commanding others to follow. See, it is said of Napoleon Bonaparte that rather than standing there and charging his troops to go for it, he went ahead of them and told them, follow me. Follow me. See, I really like the whole, like, don't let people despise you for your youth until I actually saw the implications. There's a lot of work Timothy has to do to actually gain some credibility. So where in the world is Timothy going to find the spiritual resource to do any of these things? To live like this? I'll tell you where. He's to learn from the 30-year-old man from Nazareth who made enemies inside and outside of his own circles because of his godliness. He's to learn from the one who rebuked his enemies yet looked them in the eyes and loved them, died for them. The one who got into theological disputes with his enemies but did not get reeled into the silliness of it. Telling him plainly, this is why you do not understand the scriptures. The one who, at his trial, they could not find one real charge against him. The one without reproach, above reproach, yet bore our reproach. The real example who was killed was never jaded, never cynical, never insincere, Jesus Christ. That's who's going to give Timothy the energy to live like this. I commend him to you so that you may stir in your own hearts the gift that the Lord has given you. Amen? Pray for us.
Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that it instructs us on how we uh, are to please you. I pray that you give us hearts um, and affections that actually desire to please you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>